Genesis chapter 44. You know, we're so uh, accustomed to living life on a horizontal level. Uh, rarely do people ever even give a lot of thought to God. I mean, I just want you to think back to the news that was reported this past week. How many newscasts, how many reports, how many things that you read on the web did, had anything to do with God saying that God was involved or he's at work or doing something like this or we see God moving perhaps in this people group? It's, it never happens. It never it just doesn't happen. We don't talk about God and in a general pattern in our world. He's rarely or ever mentioned in news coverages and current events. Uh, even when it comes to the fact of creation, whether it be examining or looking at the human body or the galaxy, God is just ignored. In fact, he hasn't even given credit for any of the things that he's designed or developed. God at best in our world is portrayed as a crutch for a feeble humanity, like some sort of emotional uh, little bit of stability in life. And he's just relegated to unnecessary and unimportant. And then, of course, you have some Christians and then they they say something like this. God is good or God is great. And, you know, the rest of the world is going, what are you talking about? I mean, you never see God and he's rarely spoken of. What do you mean he's good and he's great? How do you how do you even know that? How can you actually see that? Well, that's why that's why this passage that we're coming to in Genesis 44 is so critical. In chapter 44, going into the first part of 45, we see glimpses of God. We see glimpses of his power accomplishing his plan and it is so pivotal these these verses that we're going to look at it gives us a clear understanding of the profound ways that god is working in our world and one of the most profound ways he's working is a way that perhaps he's not oftentimes recognized for and that is he brings brokenness to the sinful now you remember what was happening as we've made our way as we're studying the life of joseph Joseph, even though he is the prime minister of Egypt, he's second in command. He he actually has encountered his brothers. They don't know that he is their brother. He is his brother. And he throws them this huge feast. And after the feast is over, after all the mashed potatoes are finally eaten, that very last bite, uh, the, the brisket is finished, all the baked chicken is done. At the very end, he sends them on their way and he's going to send them with grain. For that was the purpose they came. They came to get their brother Simeon back. They showed them, this is our youngest brother, Benjamin. We weren't lying. We're, we came here in good faith. We need food. It's a famine. We're starving. And they get their food, and they are on their way. And so it picks up here after, after the feast in verse 34, in chapter 44, verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry. I want them to have as much food as possible to make it through this famine. And he says, and put each man's money in the mouth of a sack. This has happened before, and it actually created a great deal of fright in their life. And then in verse 2, he said, Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. Now, Joseph, you remember, is he's been giving a series of tests to his brothers to find out if their heart toward God has really changed, if their heart toward his brothers, his, especially brother Benjamin and his dad, have they changed? And so he's issuing what we could call in chapter 44 the final exam. He not only has their money returned to them, 
But he mentions, I want the cup, this silver cup. Now, because he's royalty, this cup symbolizes the authority of his office. They actually used this cup. It would be used uh, when we look at history. It was used to try to interpret the future. Okay, it's uh, called hydromancy, where they pour water, sometimes oil in there, and they kind of move it around. And somehow by looking at the water here, they would think that pagans would think that somehow you could determine the future or what was going to happen next. Now, Joseph obviously didn't do things like that, but because he was the second command, he's the prime minister, he would have a cup like that. It was a well-known cup. He said, I want you to take that silver cup and I want you to put it into that youngest boy's sack. Now, Joseph doesn't use this cup for telling the future or gathering information as as it would normally be practiced, but he does use this cup to gain insight into his brother's. And watch what happens here. So, verse 3, as soon as it was light, the men were sent on their way, and they go on their donkeys. Verse 4, they had just gone out of the city, and they were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. Okay, so he, he, what he does, he lets the boys go off, you know, they're, and they're probably really thankful to get out of Egypt, you know, because they had no idea what was going to happen. They're really glad they're able to leave. They got all this grain. They're making their way. And then Joseph says, all right, testing time has come. He tells the steward. The steward probably goes with, he's got a contingent of soldiers, and they make their way. The boys are on their donkeys. They're over, grain overflowing everywhere. And all of a sudden, here come the Egyptians. You can hear their chariots and like, Oh, man, now what? And they look back there, and sure enough, here they, here they come. They pull them over, okay, just kind of like your routine traffic stop there. And they're like, okay, now what's the deal here? And so he's, he makes these, these uh, accusations to them, to them. So verse 6, so he overtook them and spoke these words to them. And they said to them, oh, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. We, we would never do this. And, and so confident they are that they would never be involved in any sort of crime whatsoever. Look at what he says, verse 8. Behold, the money which we have found in the mouth of our sacks uh, have, have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? No way. We'd never do that. We brought our money back. We are good servants of your king. No, we'd never do that. Verse 9, they even say this. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. We're so convinced of our innocence that if any one of us have done any wrong, let him die. And they, and they load it up and says, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. They're absolutely convinced there is no problem. They have done nothing wrong. Well, we're going to find out. Verse 10. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave. Okay, he kind of tones it down. He senses the boys are a little ratcheted up, and he says, no. Okay, whoever's got that cup, that he's going to be the slave. And the rest of you, you're innocent, you're going to go free. Well, all right, they're very quick to want to show that they have done no wrong. So verse 11, then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. Okay, and so now the steward is going to start searching. Once again, he shows that he has great insight to who these men are because he starts with the oldest. So verse 11, he searched, 
I mean, verse 12, he searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. And there, you can just see it. He's just going through each one and nothing there. Okay. And they're, they're coming all the way down. They've gone from the oldest. They're down to the youngest. They're thinking, great, man. All right, we are scot-free. No problem. There's no way that Benjamin would do something like this, right? Well, then verse 12, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. They're shocked because this would be a serious crime. They thought they were home free. Everything was fine. In reality now, they actually have evidence that they are thieves. And they just, and notice how they respond here. Verse 13, they tore their clothes. This is how they would, and it's a custom that's even still practiced today, they actually tear their garments. And they do so as an expression of, of a brokenness of heart. Like our heart is being torn apart, so they just start tearing their garments. I've, I've often thought that, you know, in the Hebrew culture, it'd probably be a really good idea to be a tailor because they're always tearing their garments, and so you always have a job, you know? Something bad happened, they tear their garment, like, oh, here, let me help your shirt, you know? And you sew their little robe back together there. So they're ripping their clothes. They're like, no, how could this possibly be? And so they're tearing their, their garments, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. And then... When, and so they return to the city. They're going to come right back to Joseph. And when Joseph, Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, verse 14, he was still there and they fell to the ground before him. Once again, the dream, remember that all the way back in chapter 37 about the dreams of his brothers bowing down before him. Once again, that becomes a reality. They are completely humbled. They are face down before him. They fall down before him. They're down upon the ground. And verse 15, Joseph said to them, what is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? You can see Joseph continually playing it up. He is continually giving the guys that he is indeed an Egyptian and an Egyptian nobleman, even though he is he's second in command. He's really their brother. But by having this cup and this divination, there's no way that they'd ever suspect. And yet they, they've got to be thinking, how does he know our order? How did, he, how did he know the order of our birth? How does he know so much about us? And now he's, he's talking about this cup of divination. Don't you know that a guy like me could have a cup like that and do as I please? And notice, notice how the attention turns to Judah. And Judah speaks up. Judah has eclipsed Reuben as the, the primary, the head guy in the family. Reuben has is kind of he's kind of moved off. His sin and his failures and his lack of leadership has shown Judah steps in. And notice verse sixteen. Verse sixteen is one that you might want to either underline or put a mark by. It is one of the significant verses in the book of Genesis. So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can We speak. And how can we justify ourselves? Notice he's not shifting the blame. He's speaking all inclusively. How could what he's using the word we? How can we justify ourselves? And then notice what he says in verse 16. God, Elohim, the supreme ruling, creating God. He has found out the iniquity of your servants. God has found it out. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. What Judah is saying is, this is really not an issue with the gods of Egypt. Elohim, the one true God, 
he has discovered and found out our iniquity. It's remarkable because notice how far Judah has come. Judah was the wicked guy who said, let's sell our brother into slavery. Judah is the one in chapter 38, that chapter that had us all squirming when we went through it because of his wickedness and his immorality and his arrogance and his abandoning of his family and just the sheer wickedness of his life. This same man now is a broken man and he realizes that indeed he's in the hand of God and he says, God has found us out. God is the one who's identified us as those who are guilty. He's discovered our iniquity. And so verse 17, but he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in who this is Joseph speaking, the man in whose possession the cup has been found. He shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. There's in this final exam. There's two parts to it. There is the vertical exam part. Do these brothers see themselves in the hand of God? Do they acknowledge God and his work in their life? Have they come to a point of conviction? And now Judah knows that they didn't steal the cup. Joseph knows that. But what he's doing is he's realizing that the iniquity of their life, that all the hatred they expressed to their brother Joseph, the fact that they were going to kill him but ended up selling him for 20 pieces of silver, this is the guilt and the iniquity he's talking about. He realizes that God has discovered and, and convicted them of their sinfulness. And when you see God bringing about brokenness, brokenness, you know what you're seeing? You're seeing glimpses of God. You're seeing his activity in the world. And these boys have passed that first test, that vertical test, really with flying colors. We could give them a straight A because they indeed acknowledge and see the hand of God in their life. But there's a second part to this test, and it's a horizontal test. What do you really think about your brothers, especially Benjamin? And your dad, whom you've grieved, has your heart changed there? So here comes then the second test. He says in verse 17, Joseph says, you know, far be it for me to do this. He says, I'm not going to take all of you as slaves. No, he says, verse 17, the man whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace, your father. He's what he's saying is, listen, I'm not taking the rest of you. All the rest of you can go in peace. Go to your father. I'm just taking the one. I'm taking Benjamin. He's going to be my slave. Now, really, this is kind of almost a repeat of what happened when in Genesis 37. Remember when Joseph came and he came and approached his brothers in Dothan? They, what did they do? They sold him into slavery. And they were just fine with that. That is totally cool if Joseph goes and, and ends up being a slave for the rest of his life. We're on our way and we'll live life without that guy because we hate him. Well, this is kind of a repeat test. You see, they can go free. They can go and be with their families. They can have all their grain. And if they really hated Benjamin, they hated uh, Rachel's son, then you know what? They just leave him. What Joseph is doing is he's looking to see, has their heart really changed to their family? to Benjamin, to their dad. He says, you go and you can have peace. And there's like, there is no way that could ever happen. Verses 18 through 34 is the longest speech in the verse in the book of Genesis. And in it, Judah goes and he lays out for them why it would be impossible for them to do it. And I want you to notice his great concern for his father. Fourteen times he actually speaks of their father. Look what he says. Verse 18. Then Judah approached him 
and said, oh, my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servant, saying, have you a father or brother? And we said to my Lord, well, well, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother and his father loves him. Okay, so they they account and wrote off Joseph as being dead. And they know that their father favors Benjamin. But look at their attitude toward him. Verse 21. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. See that at the end of verse 22. If if Benjamin does not come back, it'll be fatal to our old father. He simply could not handle it. Verse 23, you said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus, it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, you know what? We simply just cannot just go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Verse 27, your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons and the one who went out from me, excuse me, and the one went out from me. And I said, surely he is torn in pieces. I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol, the abode of dead in sorrow. Now, therefore, When I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life. You can't really separate. His life is in that boy's life. If he doesn't return or anything bad happens to him, our dad dies. He means this much to us. We simply cannot return without him. Verse 31, he says, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus, your servants will bring the gray hair of Your servant, our father, to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Remember that? Remember it was Judah who had returned to his family and said, Listen, if anything happens to that boy, Benjamin, it's all me. You can cast all your guilt, all your blame, any consequences Upon me, I am going to be surety in his stead. You see, Judah has completely changed. At one point in his life, he had no problem selling a brother off into slavery. Here now, he is willing to make himself a slave to free his brother. Verse 33, he says, now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father? This is rather remarkable change that has taken place in the life of Judah. And by the way, this is the change that God wants to take place in all of our lives. All of us, uh, not just me, all of us. We've been involved in wickedness and sin. We've treated God with unholiness and total disregard. And God brings us to a point of brokenness. 
And when we see our guilt, when we can say, like he says in verse 16, God has discovered our iniquity. He has made it clear to us when there is brokenness, when there is a desire to do what is right, where there is once just a just a running to do what is wrong. You know what that is? That's glimpses of God at work in our lives. And what we see here in Judah is simply transformation. Well, Joseph is taking this all in. The time, 14 times he hears about his father, he sees the tremendous change. He sees how they've not only passed the vertical test where they see themselves in the hand of God, but the horizontal test that they, that they have a great love and concern for their family, especially their father. It's more than they can handle. He, Joseph is, is in a situation where now all of a sudden those emotions that are so deep within him, his heart, it starts erupting. And we're going to see not only is the greatness and goodness of God seen through the brokenness to the sinful. There's another sign or if you want to see the glimpse of God's greatness and his goodness. And that's when you see deliverance despite of despite evil. Well, verse 45, chapter verse one in chapter 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. And so there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. You can just see it. Tears coming up. He could feel it. Perhaps he starts trembling. Slaves, servants, his key men, his advisors. He clears them all out. Every Egyptian out now. He clears them all out. His brothers at this point have to be panicking. They see that he is visibly shaken. There's something going on. They're like, what is, what's going to happen now? Is, is now he, is he going to kill us? And he just doesn't want any witnesses to see it. They don't know what is going to happen. Judah is down there. They're probably still all face down. Judah, maybe he perhaps is on his knees as he gives this speech. They do not know what is going to happen. They do know that something is and something serious and severe. Well, Joseph can no longer control it. Verse two, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it throughout the palace. I mean, it's just one of those, you know, uncontrollable, just heaving, visceral reactions. He's crying. He's sobbing. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And then verse three, Joseph said to his brothers, he said this in Hebrew, I am Joseph. What? And he asked quickly, is my father still alive? But his, his brothers could not answer him for they were just made at his presence. What? I mean, here he is. He's all decked out. He's got that gold chain. He is Egyptian throughout. He's dressed like one. He looks like one. He acts like one. But now he's speaking in their native tongue. He's speaking in Hebrew. And he says, I'm Joseph. He's asking about their father. Is he really alive? And these, these boys are just like, what? How could it be? And then he says, he can see they're just completely in shock. There's just... This is like beyond any paradigm. This is irreconcilable in their mind. Then verse four, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer. He's the Hebrew word nagash. It doesn't mean just necessarily come closer in proximity. They had a different word for that. It means to come near, like to it'd be like coming near to embrace or to kiss. He tells his boys, his, his brothers who are on the floor, get up, come near. Come near to me. See me. Come close. Be with me. He says, come close to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
Now he, they're they're like they're coming close. They can see like the, there's resemblance. They probably realize this is Joseph. And then when he says, "Whom you sold into slavery," I'd imagine that dread hit them again, because now, I mean, think of it. If you had been wrong to that degree and you had the power that no one could lift a foot without you saying, "Okay, I think that's a pretty good idea. They're probably thinking we are dead now. He's going to kill us. He has the power to do it. He has cleared all of the all of the folks that could be witnesses to this. And he just reminds them, I'm Joseph, the one that you sold into slavery. And then these next verses, they are just such sacred ground. Friends, I I want you to pay really close attention. I perhaps mark them. I want you to go back to these verses time and time again, because these next verses, five, six, seven, eight, they are a masterpiece of a recognition to the submission to the sovereignty of God. These verses show God's providential rule in the affairs of life, both good and bad. Look what he says. He says, verse five, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. I'm sure that was a huge relief to them. Oh, okay. Don't be angry. Okay. What's next? He says, verse five, because you sold me here. Don't be angry or grieved or upset about that. Look what he says. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God did this. God sent me before you to preserve life. He says, verse 6, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. He doesn't actually give them Pharaoh's dream. He just tells them, there's five more years of this famine. But look what he says in verses 7 and 8. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. God did this. And to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Not only is there going to be you kept alive as a remnant, God has sent me here to save and preserve the lives of literally thousands upon thousands. A great company of people. Verse 8, now therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. Speaking of the fact like, like an advisor, like a father would advise a son. So Joseph has a role in Pharaoh's life like an advisor, like a father to Pharaoh and Lord of, of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. But what he points out here is, God has done this. This is this is remarkable. And oftentimes people don't even think about this. We believe that if we see good things that, yeah, God's somehow involved in this. And and many people, Christians, would say that, yeah, God can make good out of evil. You know, like he's able to transform the actions of wickedness and somehow God can work out good in that. But this is not that's not what this is saying. It's saying more to this. It's more than that. What he's saying is this, that from the beginning, it was God who brought Joseph here. He used the evil actions of these brothers to bring Joseph here so that through a series of events, Joseph would save not only his family, but a multitude 
and that he would be in this place for such a time as this. God did it. God was involved in the actions and he worked through even the evil intent and actions of his brothers. Those two words in verse 8, but God changes everything. And I want you to spend good time on this. I don't want you to go like, whew, that's pretty deep and heavy. And um, I think I'm going to leave that to the theologians. And I'm going to kind of just go through life getting pummeled and, and beat up and never really understanding what's going on or how I'm supposed to function. Friends, we need to know this. God is with us through it all. Even in the difficulties and the hardships Those two words, but God, change it all. God sent me. And you see the perspective that Joseph has? It is a God-centered perspective. God is involved in all the aspects of my life. He was involved even when you sold me into slavery. It's all about God. In fact, later at the end of this book, Joseph is going to basically give a repeat of this speech. And he's going to say, you know what you did to me? You meant it for evil. But God, he meant it for good to bring about this present deliverance and to preserve the people that you see here. You see, he has a completely God-directed attitude. And let me tell you this. When we have a God-directed focus, when we are trusting that he is working not only through the good things that are happening to us, like the promotion or things happening with our children, but even in the difficulties like I'm facing cancer or this hardship financially, relationship-wise. Why am I even here in Central Texas? God is at work. It's a God-centered perspective. And what Joseph does is he does this. He allows his theology to overcome his human emotions. Because what would be the natural human emotion if you've been so wrong? The natural human emotion is what? Revenge, justice, but it is a God entranced vision that he has. He sees himself in the hand of God. That is why he responds to life so differently. That is why he is not only a good man. He is a great man because he is God's man and he sees it so. And you know what this this passage does as we've looked at it? It reveals the central character of the Bible. And the central character of this story. And the central character is not Joseph. You know who the central character is? It's God. God is the central character. God is the, char- the central character of this story. And he's the central character of our lives as well. Now, you know what happens when we come to a point where we actually believe not only our location, but our position and what has happened to our life. When we can come to a point and realize that even though there was evil involved in the process, that God was through it and working in it all. Do you know what happens when we can come to that point theologically and practically? We become trophies of his grace because we are firmly entrenched that God is working through it all. And let me just tell you something else that had taken place for Joseph to be able to utter these kind of statements. We've talked about it before, but it it bears worth repeating. Joseph had come to a point long before these events where he had forgiven his brothers. You know, if he had not fully forgiven them, there is no way that he could embrace them. Think of it. 
Think of people in your life that have hurt you deeply. If you have not forgiven them, you can't go up and shake their hands with great sincerity. You cannot give them a hug or if it's one of your relatives, kiss them on the cheek or something like that. Because you know why? There is something in you that is holding back. It's like you have hurt me. You have wronged me. And there's no way you're getting this close to me. But when you come to a point where you have forgiven them, you have released them. You have rested this matter in the hand of God. You are able to express and to extend the love of God to people, even some of the people that have hurt you the most. And certainly that is what Joseph did. Remember, he even named one of his own kids, his firstborn, Manasseh. Anybody remember what that means? That's right. To forget. Manasseh. I have forgotten. God has allowed me to forget all the evil that was brought upon me by my family. He lived in forgiveness. And I'll tell you, what a, what a beautiful expression forgiveness is. You see, when we forgive, we can love. And until you forgive, you cannot. When we are resting that we are in the sovereignty of God, that we are in God's hand, he is working out our, our, his purpose in our lives. When we are resting in that point, we can come to the point where we can forgive those who have hurt us the most. Remember Jesus? Remember Jesus when they nailed him to the cross? You know what he was saying over and over? It's recorded in Luke 23, verse 34. You know what he said? Over and over he repeated this, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. How could he say that? Because Jesus was resting firmly in the sovereign plan of God. And at the same time, his heart was filled with love, even for those who were crucifying him, so that he could say, Father, forgive them. How could he do it? Because he was simply God. And we, as God's people, can follow in his footsteps and extend such forgiveness. You see, Joseph demonstrates for us what we all need and what we need reminding of a God centered perspective on life's events, past, present and future. And what profound theology is taught in these verses is this, that in his providence, God can use evil human deeds to accomplish salvation. God can use even evil human deeds like what Joseph's brothers did to him to bring about salvation. And you know what this is an amazing picture of? This is an amazing picture of Jesus Christ. Can you think of someone who was betrayed, someone who was mocked, someone who was bound for a purpose? The deliverer, Jesus Christ. The very first sermon that was given after the resurrection of Christ was given by Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. He basically capitalized on this very same point. And I want you to listen to what he said. In Acts chapter 2, you can find the entire sermon. I want to highlight a few verses. In verse 22, he said this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, God did it, you saw it, you witnessed these things. He says, verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was predetermined. It was part of the foreknowledge of God. He says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. 
But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by his power. God, God, according to his foreknowledge, even his predestination, his predetermined plan, but it was godless men that put him to death. And when they heard that, they're like, whoa, what do we do? How do we respond to that? He said, what you need to do is you need to repent. Be baptized. Believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, what was taking place there is he was saying, even though you perpetrated these evil acts against God's Messiah, God was working all along and he was bringing out his perfect plan, his plan of salvation. And so do you want to see glimpses of God in your life? Let me tell you where to look personally. Do you see a brokenness over sin? Like you see in chapter 44 of Genesis, are you truly broken over your sin? You see, only when we realize our guilt before God can we ever become free. Until you see your sin and your offense to holy God, until you recognize, indeed, I am a sinful creature before a holy God, you can never come to a point of freedom that is offered in Christ. There's a story told of King Frederick II. He's an 18th century king in Prussia. Had a few quirks about him. We won't get into those. But one day he was, he was taking a tour of a prison in Berlin. And, you know, as the king, you can do whatever you want. And as soon as the people and these prisoners saw that King Frederick was there, they all running up to their cages that they were in and they're pleading that they are totally innocent and they don't deserve to be in here. And they're just pleading one after another and shaking. And they've got all these stories of why they've been wrongly accused and why they shouldn't be there. All except this one guy. There apparently was this one guy who was huddled up in a corner. And he seemed like completely oblivious to all the commotion that was going on. King Frederick you know, he walked through prisons before, never seen anything like that before. Usually everybody's like, no, oh, I'm innocent. Let me out of here, you know. And so he, uh, he said, he asked that guy, hey, what are you in here for? And the man very humbly said, armed robbery, your honor. Well, King Frederick said, well, are you guilty? Did you do it? And he said, yes, absolutely. I, I deserve everything that I'm receiving. King Frederick then told the guard, he says, I want you to release that guilty man because I don't want him corrupting all these other innocent people that are in here. Okay? (laughs) So he let the guy out. And I tell you that because until you see that you are deserving of God's wrath, you will never come to a point where you are seeing your need and seeing the deliverer. Jesus Christ. You see, when you come to a point in your life where not only you're broken over your sin, but that you see God's deliverer, Jesus Christ, the promised one who died on a cross for you to pay the penalty for your sin. He was perfectly righteous, never sinned, died on your behalf so that you who believe in him can be forgiven and experience his righteousness and his life until you come to that point. You still remain in your sin. You're like an innocent, you're like a guilty man pleading your innocence while you're in jail. But if you want freedom, you want to know life, it's found in God's deliverer. And anytime we see people trusting Christ, you know what we're seeing? We're seeing glimpses of God. When I'm standing up here and I'm looking out over all of you, most of you who truly know and love Christ, you know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing glimpses of God at work in his world. He is fulfilling and bringing out his plan despite all the evil that's out there, even the hardships and difficulties 
and even the sin that's been imposed upon us. So is God really good? And is he really great? Well, anytime you see that there is a, there's truly brokenness over your sin and you truly see the deliverer and you're holding on to him with everything you've got, you know what you're seeing around the world? You're seeing glimpses of his greatness, glimpses of God. And no, it's not only in Waco and Central Texas that God is doing his work. Do you know there's millions around the world that are broken over their sin and clinging to a deliverer? All of this is pointing out, indeed, that God is powerful enough to bring about his plans in our world. And we sleep glimpses of God. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I thank you that you have recorded the events of history. And we see not only you transforming the life of Judah and his brothers, but how you work through Joseph And you allowed him to have a God-centered perspective in all of life. And so, Father, for the person who has come here today who has never put their trust in you, Lord, would they pray with me and say, Lord, you know about my sin. You know that I'm guilty before you. I've offended your holiness. But today, I finally understand that that's why you sent Jesus, to pay the penalty for my sin. And I turn from myself and my wickedness, and I trust Christ and Christ alone. As my Savior, fill me with your life and your love for your glory. And Lord, for all of us, would you give us a great confidence in you? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.